You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. We're in our final sermon of the spring preaching series uh, on Doubting Doubts. George has been leading us through this series on how Jesus' parables raise doubts on the assumptions and the beliefs of the secular age that we're living immersed in. He's especially been walking us through some of the thoughts of a Canadian philosopher called Charles Taylor. And if you, you might recall, it began with the story of two sons, the one who was a disappointment at breakfast, but a joy at dinner, and the other who was a joy at breakfast and a disappointment at dinner. And there was kind of a little talky thing that went up on here with George and um, Byron. How many of you are here for that sermon? We're just going to take attendance all the way through this, right? So I'm going to see how many people I can just shame as we go. But um, we're ending with another story of two sons. This one's a little more familiar. We often talk about it as the story of the prodigal son or the lost son, but it's actually about two sons. And if you want to turn in your uh, black Bibles, I'll be reading the story. We're in Luke 15. It's right around page 850 in those Bibles, Luke 15. And just before we start the actual story of the lost son, I want to remind you the context here, because at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, here's what Luke writes. He says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, those would be the um, religious leaders and the academics at the time, were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. And then from there, Jesus tells a series of three lost and found parables. So the first is the story of the lost sheep. Sheep goes away, gets found, party. Uh, Then it's the story of the lost coin. Coin gets lost, gets found, celebration. And then it's this story. And you can see, I mean, Jesus is an amazing storyteller because he's just warming them up, right? Because who doesn't get so excited about finding lost stuff? Yeah? So, I mean, you lose a sheep, you find it, everyone's, everybody listening is going to be happy about that. You pull out your your coat you haven't worn since last spring, and there's a $20 bill in the pocket. Everybody's happy when this happens. And then all of a sudden, Jesus switches from property to people. And it goes like this. Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So the father divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. It's literally ruled by his need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. 
So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us celebrate and eat. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, before I keep reading, I want to pause. Because Jesus is such an amazing storyteller. Because the second half of the parable is something new. You remember the other ones? Find the sheep, party. Find the coin, party. Lost son, found, party. And now here's something new that comes in. And remember, as you hear about the older brother, these Pharisees and scribes and the grumbling. When it should end with celebration, there's an entire scene still to be played. Now the father's elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. The servant replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then the older brother became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, our rock and our redeemer, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart will be acceptable in your sight. Amen. So you could, I suppose, call this a parable about lost property. Give me the share of the property that will belong to me. When this son of yours, who has devoured your property, comes back, half of the estate, half of his wealth, cashed in to give to this younger son. And there is some very distinct vocabulary in this original language that makes it clear that this is half of what this father and this family lived on. This isn't just some trust fund baby. He's taken half of everything he presently lives on, distributes it to his son, who tears through the money in dissolute living. But once Jesus has his feeler, listeners feeling all excited about finding lost property, Jesus tells a story about losing property and finding a son. It's also a story about doubts. The doubts that drive one son away from the family and the father and the doubts that prevent the other son from celebrating his brother's return. 
And both of these doubts center on this father. The father in this parable that Jesus tells represents the God whom Jesus calls father. So let's start with the younger son. Here's a kid who doubts that there's anything for him in his father's home, working in his father's field. Whatever life is supposed to be, this isn't it. He's just not convinced that the constraints of loyalty and obedience will end in the fulfillment and the joy that he's seeking. And his actions suggest that what he believes in is the pursuit of pleasure. That property and wealth is for the sake of comfort, of happiness, of ease. Why work the fields at home when you can revel in the far country? Now, remember the people whom Jesus is embracing that causes the Pharisees and the scribes to grumble at the beginning. The tax collectors and the sinners. And in the context in which Jesus is walking around and immersed in, these, these people are the sellouts. These are the ones who have decided that there is neither profit nor pleasure in loyalty and obedience to their family identity as the children of Abraham worshiping the God of Abraham. These tax collectors, with their wholesale compromise with Rome and pursuit of wealth at the expense of their brother and sister Jews. These sinners, which in the first century is shorthand for a Gentile lifestyle, right? Gentile sinners is what you'll find in the Bible. These sinners who have left the Jewish family to associate wholesale with the lifestyle of the Gentiles. These people who have cashed in their inheritance as the children of Abraham and are living totally immersed in and defined by the politically Roman and socially Gentile morality and priorities. And then after reflecting on that, I wondered how this story intersects with us in a secular age. Throughout this series, George has been guiding us in reflection on our lives immersed in the secular age using Charles Taylor. And one of Taylor's observations about a secular age, well, he makes two very interesting ones. First of all, he says, you know, we're so near to it that it's very hard to see any difference between ourselves and the so-called seculars in the age. We are the seculars. And the other observation, another observation that Taylor makes is that a characteristic of the secular age is a, is a rejection of constraint. A rejection of the constraints of loyalty and obedience that of those who have chosen faith, of those who have chosen to be in the family of faith. Because these, these constraints go up against human flourishing is how it's seen in a secular age. In a secular age, you've got to follow through the natural desires and 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 proclivities and, and whatever it is to be human. You've got to discover it and go for it. And constraint is a negative feature. So while the younger son had to go to the far country before he found himself immersed in a place that encouraged him to recklessly race through the family estate entrusted to him, you and I, we only have to walk through the front door or turn on the computer or click on the TV and keep up with the Kardashians. Because Western secular culture, like the younger son, is simply not convinced, it doubts, that there is anything to be gained in remaining within the constraints of the family of God, associating with the household of faith, 
laboring in the Father's fields. There's such a thing as too devout. I mean, what are the pithy sayings? Follow your bliss. Not all who wander are lost. And these may be fine, you know, apply to graduates who, you know, really, really want to go to med school when their parents think they should be a barista at Starbucks, right? But they're not so great with eternal choices and transcendent choices. As Jesus tells his story, however, the story itself casts doubt on this secular doubt and on the younger brother's doubt, this rejection of constraint. Because embedded in Jesus' story is a reality check, isn't there? On the delusion that there is more to be gained in a life pursued away from the father's home, far from the constraints of loyalty and obedience. The younger brother, as the story goes, is deluded into a life that ultimately leaves him enslaved, ruled by his needs, attached to a landowner who cares nothing for him and gives nothing to him, dead and lost. You heard it. This is, we heard it. This is the verdict that the father gives, not once, but twice. Dead, alive, lost, found. So what brings the son home? Now, initially, listening carefully to this story, when the younger son comes to himself, begins doubting his doubts, if you will, the thing that casts doubt on his doubt is he remembers the father's righteousness, his justice. Did you catch that? How the father treats the hired hands, the human dignity, the justice with which the father regards and treats those who work for him. Something that the younger son isn't getting in the far country, where he's not even given the scraps. Human dignity and justice. Now, it strikes me that this is actually a shared value that we hold with our current secular age, with modern moral order that we're living in, as, as Taylor calls it. And as we live out the family values of the father, and we need to not miss this, we've got to catch this. If we live out the family values of the father, a shared dedication to human dignity is a powerful invitation for the lost to come home. But according to the story, it isn't the heart of the homecoming or the heart of the father. The heart of the homecoming, what brings him home as a son, is compassion. What this younger son had not counted on was the depth of his father's compassion. You heard it. It's a compassion that runs to meet the son, practically ignores this well-rehearsed, but it would seem to me, since it's repeated twice, very sincere plea for forgiveness. Do you notice this forgiveness is lavished in between this compassion the father running to him, hugging him, kissing him, putting the robe on him, putting the ring on him, killing the fatted calf, throwing a party. The boy has left the land in which he was a slave to his need and has re-entered this realm of rejoicing. This son, these tax collectors and sinners, our neighbors, ourselves, seeking after pleasure outside the bounds of constraints of loyalty and obedience, yet enticed and drawn to and interested in this justice and human dignity of the Father's house. Any among us, any of you who have desperately lost your way, ruled by need, you are the ones this Father is seeking with compassion, whose homecoming is celebrated with joy. 
I wonder if you remember a point that George made uh, Memorial Day weekend. I won't take attendance again to see if you were here. But George said that weekend that the only way through doubts is relationship. Desire for dignity may turn the hearts of the dislocated and the desperate in a secular age back towards home with curiosity towards the family of faith. But it is the embrace of God's deep compassion that will bring the lost and the dead home and back to life. The embrace of God's deep compassion that overcomes doubts about the constraints of loyalty and obedience. And isn't this compassion exactly what the older son doubts? Now remember, we have two sons in this story. The property was equally divided. And this second son, this older brother, stayed home, working his half of the bargain in the household of his father. So who's paying for this party? The younger brother remains dead to his older sibling. Did you hear it? Your son devoured your property. You killed the fatted calf for him. Isn't this the celebratory welcome that Jesus was giving these tax collectors and sinners who had so despised their inheritance as children of Israel and now find themselves seated right next to the Messiah of God? Isn't this the compassionate joy that we, the church, a part of this family, are called to be a part of when we welcome home the dislocated, the disloyal, the doubters? See, the older son's prelude to this accusation reveals his doubts and ours, I think. All these years, worked like a servant, never disobeyed a command. You hear it, don't you? I lived under your rule. When's the celebration going to start for me? If the younger brother doubted the constraints of loyalty and obedience, the older brother doubts his father's compassion. The older brother doubts the rewards of loyalty and obedience when there's such a celebration for this younger. He gives voice to the doubts that maybe, just maybe, his own constraints of loyalty and obedience have actually been in vain. He's just missed a great party in the far country. So the compassionate reception of the lost has a way of revealing the deeply held doubts that the faithful also share with the secular age. Does compassion cancel out God's justice? What does this kind of celebration say about the debauchery that had become the younger son's identity? What does this kind of reception say about the family? about the righteous and holy character of God, if this is who he celebrates. And given this spectacle, why am I wasting my time staying at home, obeying your commands, serving your purpose, if the fruit of my hard labor is wasted on parties for this person who, let's face it, got what he deserved? So now this kid comes home, lives out the rest of his life off the interest of my half of the inheritance. That's not my brother. You hear it with the older sibling. He's not my brother. He's a debt on the balance sheet of the estate. And you see, don't you, what Jesus has done in this story? He's caught out all those listening older brothers in their own anger and resentment, disarmed them with a story. You'll rejoice in a lost sheep. You'll rejoice in a lost coin. You won't rejoice in a person. And if we receive them back with compassion and rejoicing, what does this say about the disgrace they embodied? 
Do the constraints of loyalty and obedience to God the Father mean nothing at the end of the day? And let's see how gentle, how gracious Jesus' story is toward any of us who find ourselves feeling rather shut out and marginalized by the resentful doubts that our long faithfulness and loyalty simply means we've missed out on fun. See, I love this father. He hasn't come out to reprimand his older boy. Did you catch that? The language of urging in this story, urging him to come in, in the original language, this, this word always has two sides. You can't separate them. It means urging and exhorting, but it also means comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people. You are always with me. All that I have is yours. Do you hear the justice and the righteousness that's still there with his father? There's no threat to my justice here, he assures his son. There's no threat to my righteous character here. The it's affirmed. But that isn't what brings the older boy home and in. It's compassion and joining in compassion that brings this older sibling back into the family. See, in compassion, the father's words remind the older brother that it was never about property and reputation to begin with. The real treasure was being at home with the father. You are always with me. Relationship is the real treasure. The only way through doubt is relationship. You are always with me. And there's reassurance of the very thing that those who have remained faithful so readily doubt. You've lost nothing. Rejoicing isn't a repudiation of your loyal obedience. All that I have is yours. The human flourishing that you seek and long for and desire to share alongside your friends. This has never been a zero-sum game. The abundance of my compassion towards your brother, I'll bear that cost. Not you. Everything I have is yours. But we, and that we I find amazing, we, you and I, we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours, not son of mine, brother of yours, as it was, as it is now, was dead and has come to life, was lost and has been found. You wanted a party, just come inside. Compassion overcomes doubts. Think of our cultural age. How many people so respect the good and just things that the church will do in the world, but keep their distance for lack of an embodied compassion when they try to come home? To the younger brothers and sisters among us, God's compassion overcomes doubts. Lived fully and freely in the family of faith, cast doubts on the delusion of culture and age, that the rejection of constraint that promises fulfillment and life but results in disorientation and death. God's compassion overcomes our doubts that we can never ever come home fully restored after wandering so far and failing so spectacularly. God's compassion overcomes our doubts and invites the lost and the dead to turn away from the dominion of need. Re-enter the realm of rejoicing. Won't you come home? And to the older brothers and sisters, God's compassion overcomes our doubts. Our doubts that loyalty and obedience really are worth the investment. God's compassion overcomes our doubts that compassion and rejoicing really can live side by side with God's justice and righteousness. 
And God's compassion overcomes our doubts and invites the angry complainers to turn away from their resentment and cross the threshold into rejoicing. Won't you come in? Amen. join us as we remain seated. We're going to sing the chorus from Jesus, I am resting. as we continue to worship in prayer. Jesus, um, we just thank you for the message that Lori uh, has brought us, and we ask that we would be able to live out your compassion and live in your compassion this next week. We especially pray and lift up all our graduating students this month, whether they're in high school or college. And we pray that you would just uh, empower their eyes to be open to the truth that you are already with them and that you are already present in their lives um, and that you are guiding their steps and their future uh, and that you care about them deeply. We also pray that uh, you would guide every person in this room who's going through a season of transition, whether that's graduation, uh, life transition, um, and we pray that you would bless them and keep them. And now we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. At this point... At this point, I'd like to invite those who are being installed as elders or deacons to go ahead and come up here and uh, join me at the front. We're going to stay on the floor because there's more room here. Um, each year, the nominating committee of our congregation seeks names of people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom whose lives exemplify um, the loyalty, the obedience, the compassion of this family. And they're installed as elders. We have a session of ru the ruling elders and the pastor um, that help that guides the leadership of the 
church in worship and budgeting and all of this. And they're also installed as deacons who guide all of us in embodying the compassion of Jesus Christ to the world. So what I'm going to do is have you, I'll just walk along the line. And if you'd introduce yourself and tell us whether you're going to be an elder or a deacon, that would be great. I'll hold it for you. It's okay. Okay. Good morning. I'm Susie Kwan Chen, and I'm one of the new deaconess. I'm Cheryl Smith, and I'm a deacon. Hi, I'm Jennifer Stevenson. I'm an elder. Sharon Peterson, elder. Tom Burley, elder. Daniel Kutz, Deacon Dan. <laughs> wow. Gretchen Valentine, elder. Olin Chidix, elder. Hi, Brenda Ng, elder. Jeannie Buster, deacon. Michelle Lee, deacon. And Wayne Einfeld, deacon. Wonderful. So I have a few questions for all of you for your ordination questions. Do you trust in Jesus Christ, your Savior, acknowledge him Lord of all and head of the church, and through him believe in one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do you? I do. Do you accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be, by the Holy Spirit, the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ in the church universal and God's word to you? Do you? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the essential tenets of the Reformed faith as expressed in the confessions of the church, as authentic and reliable expositions of what the scripture leads us to believe and to do? And will you be instructed and led by these confessions as you lead the people of God? Do you and will you? That was the tricky one. If you missed that one, we were going to have you sit down. (laughs) Will you fulfill your ministry in obedience to Jesus Christ under the authority of the scripture and continually guided by our confessions? Will you? Will you be governed by our church's polity and will you abide by its discipline? Will you be a friend among your colleagues in ministry working with them subject to the ordering of God's word and spirit? Will you? Will you, in your own life, seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, love your neighbors, and work for the reconciliation of the world? Will you? Do you promise to further the peace, unity, and purpose of the church? Do you? Will you pray for and seek to serve the people with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love? Will you? Especially Deacon Dan, you will. I see it coming. And I want to remind us, these are the exact same questions a pastor answers when they're ordained. In the Presbyterian Church, pastors, elders, and deacons are all ordained to different places in the ministry, but not different hierarchies in the ministry. It's a, it's a great gift and responsibility that these brothers and sisters are taking on. So for you who will be ruling elders, will you be a faithful ruling elder watching over the people, providing for their worship, nurture, and service? Will you share in government and discipline, serving in councils of the church? And in your ministry, will you try to show the love and justice of Jesus Christ? Will you? And for you deacons, will you be a faithful deacon, teaching charity, urging concern, and directing the people's help to the friendless and those in need? And in your ministry, will you try to show the love and justice of Jesus Christ? Will you? So questions to the congregation, why don't you stand alongside your brothers and sisters? 
Do we, the members of this church, accept these brothers and sisters as ruling elders or deacons, chosen by God through the voice of this congregation to lead us in the way of Jesus Christ? Do we? And do we agree to pray for them, to encourage them, to respect their decisions, and to follow as they guide us, serving Jesus Christ, who alone is head of the church? Do we? If you would take your um, a moment, and we will pray for these newly installed elders and deacons. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you walked among us, called us to walk with you, and entrusted your ministry to us. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, who provides everything we need to serve you with energy and intelligence and imagination and love. And we pray for these men and women. We pray that you will put a hedge around them and their families and their loved ones that uh, continues to protect and encourage and guide them for service. We pray you give them wisdom and discretion. We pray for joy as they follow you, uh, serve you, and serve us. It's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.